This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with the Pledge Radio in Michigan and Lancer Broadcasting. I'm Jolan Asami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. You can subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. We thank you for tuning into America's Roundtable. After serving as state senator for the Commonwealth of Virginia, Tom Garrett was elected to the U.S. Congress and served on the House Committees on Foreign Affairs, Homeland Security, and Education and the Workforce. He is a U.S. Army veteran and served in locations including the Balkan region. He is currently engaged in foreign policy, civil society, and serves as a well-respected advisor on the religious front, spending time in difficult parts of the world, including Syria. As an attorney, he practices law in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and truly, he is a great American patriot and statesman. Tom, it is our great honor to have you on America's Roundtable this weekend. Welcome, Tom. Welcome, Tom. Thank you all for having me. This past week, the Wall Street Journal's Dan Hanninger wrote, I quote, The progressive ruin of major cities inhabited by liberals is a significant political event. Consequences that might have emerged over years have been compressed into months by pandemic and protests. It is doubtful many will check the box for Mr. Trump in November, but who knows? Their alternative is Joe Biden, whose contribution to the urban chaos this week was... There is no reason for the president to send federal troops into a city where people are demanding change peacefully and respectfully. Which city is he looking at? Unquote. And this was written by Don Hanninger of the Wall Street Journal. Tom, when looking at America's select cities experiencing violent protests, destruction of property, the mayhem, and killings affecting countless families in these urban areas, what would your advice be to mayors, state governors, the Homeland Security, and the White House? Well, this is an interesting sort of question because it, it sets out a paradigm wherein you have to first reconcile the role of the government at a particular level, local versus state versus federal, with the reality that's on the ground. And I have, you know, by my reading of the Constitution, there is no role for a federal police force. Having said that, uh, I would argue that the role of government from Hobbes to Locke to Jefferson and Madison is to protect life, liberty, and property. Uh, obviously, there's been an abdication of that responsibility by innumerable mayors and certainly some governors. And so now you have to sort of lay on top of the abdication of responsibility of local government leaders, uh, the restrictions against uh, federalization of the police, and it gets you to an interesting spot. Now, what I would hope in a free society uh, is that people would demand that government do their job, that is, protect life, liberty, and property. I think, uh, tragically, that journalism schools, perhaps 50 years ago, stopped creating the sort of truth-tellers that Jefferson envisioned when he opined that if he could only have uh, one between a free press and a free society, he would opt for the free press because the free society would take care of itself. Uh, and he said, obviously, that sunlight is the best disinfected, but the, the, the press has stopped telling the story of the aggrieved property owner. They've ignored the voices of the families who've lost children and loved ones in, in places like Chicago and even in the Chaz, uh, which later became the CHOP, in the violence there. So 
uh, incumbent upon, I think, the people is a demand that government function within foundationally conceived realms, and that hasn't happened. So it's a tough question. Um, I do think that the responsibility for the violence in places like Chicago and Portland should be laid at the feet of the government that's closest to the people. Again, sort of looking back to Jefferson's uh, accurate reflection that government closest to home is most accountable and most easily um, able to influence change in your life. That's where the failure, I think, lies. Um, with that said, I think we've sort of, by virtue of the media and how stories are told, federalized all of the issues so that people can find some incredibly twisted logic uh, wherein they can blame Trump for things like a murder rate in Chicago where a young black man would have been safer serving a year in Iraq or Afghanistan during periods of time than he is just living in the city that he was born in, right? So the answer is that local government needs to do their job, and if they don't do their job, the people need to demand it. But alas, it seems that a number of people have been um, deceived as it relates to the origins of the problem and the president. I think if he's going to obey the constitutional restrictions on the roles of the federal government, finds himself in a tough spot. What we've heard Trump say repeatedly is all they have to do is ask and I'll send help. That's the right message. Having said that, he seems to be sending help whether they ask or not. And while it is certainly necessary, I fear the slippery slope. Ken Cuccinelli this past week on one of the major news reports was talking about protecting federal buildings. Uh, from what you've just shared with us, Tom, how do you assess that uh, threat to federal property, which actually taxpayers pay for? Sure. Now, now, now we've got a clear-cut sort of um, implication of the role of federal government, because federal installations, federal buildings, federal courthouses are certainly within the purview of the federal authorities to protect. And so where you see repeated attempts to burn down, and that's not hyperbolic, uh, the federal courthouse in a place like Portland, Oregon, it's certainly within the purview of the federal government under the Constitution to protect that property. The question then becomes, and this I'm going to step back into my military training and some of my experience in places like Sudan and Syria and Iraq, the question then becomes, um, the definition of protect, because an actual active protecting of a physical piece of real estate often requires that you range farther than the four walls of, of the building or the four corners of the, of the property. But yeah, I have absolutely no problem, even as, as a constitutionalist, uh, with the federal government utilizing federal assets to protect federal properties, monuments, etc. It's interesting to me that the mayor in Portland, that the protesters, etc., don't understand the causal connection between their behaviors or, in the case of the mayor, failures to act and uh, federal protection of that property. It, 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 somebody's failed somewhere, I would argue, in the educational system, amongst other places. Tom, uh, one of uh, President Trump's promise as he was running for president was to drain the swamp. Uh, the swamp in Washington, D.C. works against American taxpayers and individuals and is actually helping specific industries and foreign corrupt governments. Uh, foreign corrupt governments have been successfully infiltrating NATO with the help of D.C. lobbyists. Uh, by draining the swamp, uh, President Trump has been working for America's people. 
Pulling the U.S. troops back to the U.S. is saving American lives and potentially reducing military expenditures. Bringing market competition, transparency, and canceling the middleman in healthcare is reducing the cost of healthcare to America's patients and American taxpayers. Uh, Tom, uh, during your time in the U.S. Congress, representing Commonwealth of Virginia, what were your experiences with the lobbying for special interests, and what do America's citizens need to do to drain the swamp? Well, we need to watch our members of Congress uh, after we send them to Washington, D.C., because, you know, and I'm, I'm a radical truth teller on this front, because the swamp transcends lobbying and extends directly into the Capitol building itself. The system is broken. I don't think President Trump has done a terribly good job of draining the swamp. I do think that he's trying, uh, which is to his credit, because no one's ever tried before. I think that we can be ensured that he's trying based on how loud some of the institutional powers are screaming, not just the institutional left, but the establishment right, as embodied by never Trumpers. Uh, and when I say that the, the swamp extends beyond the realm of lobbying and right into the Capitol itself, let me give you an example. I was sworn in on January 3rd, and on January 4th, as we went to get committee assignments, I was speaking to a committee chair about receiving a spot perhaps on the Agriculture Committee because agriculture was the number one economic driver in my district. And the Agriculture Committee chair informed me that that Congress, we needed to pass a farm bill. My response was that I would be delighted to take a long, hard look at it and, and I quote, try to find a way to get to yes. He informed me that if I couldn't ensure him that I was going to be a yes vote, that they couldn't have me on the Agriculture Committee. And I said, well, let me take a look at the bill. And he said, we haven't written it yet. So essentially, I was told that I had to promise to vote for a piece of legislation that didn't exist in order to get on a committee where I could best serve my constituents. And that process repeated with a second committee. Um, and I will tell you that oftentimes people run for office and say they're going to do something, and then they get to Washington, D.C. and have the opportunity to do it. But the institutional power structure tells them that they can't. And at that point, the woman or man that we've elected to represent us must decide whether or not they're there to keep their word to their constituents or to advance their political career. If you see a member of Congress elected and immediately going to a committee like Ways and Means, like Finance, like the Banking Committees, etc., these are A-level committees. And you can rest assured that a promise was extracted for them to get there with out exception. And so another example is that there was an Obamacare repeal carried by the Republican Party in 2015 while Barack Obama was still in the White House. That repeal effort got 100% of the votes of the Republican members of Congress at the time. I carried the same bill verbatim, Trump's first year in the White House, word for word identical. We couldn't get it past House leadership, Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy, to the floor for a vote, and I could only get just over 10% of the Republicans in Congress to sign the bill asking that it get a floor vote. That means that in the course of two and a half years, about 90% of the elected Republicans who had voted for a bill that they knew would not survive the veto pen of Obama, Obamacare's namesake, either changed their mind, which I do not believe, or when given an opportunity to actually keep their word balked for whatever reason. And that is shameful. 
um, ultimately getting a little bit deeper into the weeds than I think you all want to in this interview, uh, I was accused of all sorts of wrongdoing, which was baseless and without merit. And the story that prompted the investigation, normally investigations prompt stories, but the news story from Politico that prompted the investigation was encouraged and supported and requested by Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in Congress at that time. Why? I would submit because I told him and Speaker uh, Ryan repeatedly that I wasn't elected to do what they told me to do, but to do what I said I would do. And that simply didn't work in Washington. So whether it's lobbying and, and Turkey spending $10 million a month to influence actions and beliefs in Washington, D.C., and betraying our confidence and our secrets as a NATO, air quotes, ally, or whether it's members of Congress who run for office so that they can be somebody rather than so they can do something, Washington's broken. And the only way to fix it is to look at your member of Congress and see how they vote on things like Obamacare repeal when it actually has a chance to pass, as opposed to when it is a symbolic, hey, look at me vote without any chance in reality of success. And I don't know if we can get there, but I believe in God, and I believe in America, and I believe that where there's a will, there's always a way. Uh, Tom, we greatly appreciate your principled leadership and uh, the story that you just mentioned on Agricultural Committee. Ronald Reagan said in 1987, and I quote, There are the farm programs that provide little or nothing for the many family farms, but that gave one wealthy farmer more than $13 million. And that gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to a Texas landowner who is neither American nor in need of public assistance. He is the crown prince of Liechtenstein. Unquote. These are Ronald Reagan's words in 1987, where he actually exposes something very bad going on in the Congress with agricultural subsidies. And we see now, so many years after, we still have a problem. That's anecdotal. Uh, Natasha, Joel, this is not limited to one realm. This is how Washington works. Everything is at some level created with the opportunity to funnel money to people who support you. If you look at how Obamacare was implemented, the number of companies providing health care coverage was cut by almost two-thirds, but don't feel sorry for them because the big players, the Humanas and the Blue Crosses, etc., gained all the market share. And if you follow their campaign contribution, they went straight back to the people who sort of foisted that bad legislation upon America. Ditto for Obama phones, where tens of millions of dollars, not of of business, but of profit, went into the pockets of people who had supported President Obama uh, in his election and subsequent re-election campaign. If, that, if that's not pay for play, then I don't know what is. So, and further, I have a former client who was seeking to bid on a federal contract and undercut the bid of a large federal contracting entity by 50%, which would have saved taxpayers about $4 million, which I guess isn't a lot of money to some people in Washington, but it adds up. And the bid was still awarded to someone who was a crony of the person at the executive branch entity making the contract that bid twice as much. And one of his peers laughed and said, you shouldn't even have bothered to bid on that. Everybody knew they were going to give it to their friend. I mean, if we're not angry, then we're not paying attention. 
Tom, in just moving to the international front here, the Guardian's report in 2019 had the following title, Persecution of Christians Coming Close to Genocide in Middle East. Unquote. And I'd like to quote just a very brief passage from that article. It states, Pervasive persecution of Christians, sometimes amounting to genocide, is ongoing in parts of the Middle East and has prompted an exodus in the past two decades, according to a report commissioned by the British Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. In fact, it also states that the inconvenient truth the report finds is that the overwhelming majority, 80% of persecuted religious believers, are Christians, unquote. Tom, what did you observe and gather from your time spent on the continent of Africa and also in the Middle East? It's all a question of what the threshold is for someone to call it genocide, but the hard numbers are that there were approximately 4 million Christians in Iraq and Syria in, say, 2003, and were playing in the neighborhood of three or 400,000 remaining, right? So you're looking at a displacement at best and a murder, uh, at worst, of something like 85% of the Christians in the region in less than one generation. And it sort of flummoxes me because I've advocated not only on behalf of oppressed Christian minorities, but also Muslim and Yazidi, etc. It absolutely flummoxes me how the media seems to turn a blind eye uh, to the most persecuted religious minority on the planet, and that is Christians. Uh, whilst playing up rightly, I think, the, the tragedies that have befallen the Rohingya and the, and the Uyghurs and even the Fulangong and the Yazidis. Now, those stories deserve to be told, but how with a straight face uh, the global press tells them about one group and then ignores over 300 million Christians who live, according to the same study, uh, in perpetual fear of displacement or murder or, or oppression uh, is beyond me. And so... I advocate on behalf of human beings to exercise their right to uh, have a relationship with their God so long as they don't seek to hurt others, um, and I always will. I just wish that the, the storytellers internationally would be more even-handed in, 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 in doing their job. Uh, Tom, a new coronavirus relief package has been proposed by Republican senators and is being negotiated as we speak. And this proposal includes extension of enhanced jobless benefits, but at a lower level than the continuation of the current $600 a week, proposing a 70% wage replacement. Include another round of 1,200 stimulus checks to American households and $105 billion in new funding for schools and universities. And now the current federal unemployment benefits expire on July 31st, and that's why there's a rush to pass this bill. Uh, based on the Wall Street Journal, uh, data showed filings for weekly unemployment benefits rose for the first time in nearly four months as some states rolled back reopenings because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Tom, what are your thoughts about the new coronavirus relief package and would you do anything differently? Our education system, both K-12 and higher ed, has egregiously failed our children. Uh, anyone who doesn't, I mean, all you need to do is go to Washington, D.C. and get in 10 Ubers for 15 minutes each in one day, and you'll probably have drivers from seven or eight different countries originally, and they'll have one thing in common, and that is that they're overjoyed with the fact that they now live in the United States of America. And this is the greatest, freest country on the planet, despite the horrific flaws that we've detailed even in this phone call. 
And if our education system has told our children that somehow we will do Marxism differently than they did in the former Soviet Union, than they did under the Great Leap Forward under Chairman Mao, than they did when the people in Hungary and the Czech Republic were violently and brutally repressed as they sought to assert their own freedoms, than they did in Venezuela, than they did in Bolivia when Che was murdering across the countryside or Cuba, then they failed our kids. So to add a hundred plus billion dollars to education when education needs to be gutted and, and the reset button needs to be hit so that people are grateful for the amazing blessing that they have by the opportunity to either have been born here or have lived or live here. Um, that, that's, that's money I'd, I'd start with cutting out. There needs to be a long, hard look at just who we are and more importantly, who we aspire to be as a nation. Secondarily, as someone who's self-employed, and contrary to internet memes, does not get a pension at all, let alone $174,000 a year for having served in Congress, I can tell you that the well-intentioned coronavirus relief packages have created a paradigm wherein many people who are receiving 70% income replacement plus $600 a week, whether it's reduced or not, are making far more money sitting at home than they are trying to go back to work. And one of the things that's prevalent in the area where I live now is signs in front of businesses that say help wanted, but we've incentivized people not to contribute to this economy. I do not know whether it was intentional or whether it was an unintended consequence. I suspect that it depends upon whom cast the vote for it, but ultimately there's a psychologist who points out that if you ever do for something something that, you, something that they could do for themselves, you're essentially stealing from them the gratification that comes with having accomplished some sort of goal. And I've said for the, all the years that I was in politics, that if you believe for one moment that the federal government can better make decisions and support you and your family, then you need to absolutely put your hand on your wallet and slowly back away because there's no world in which that is the case unless we're dealing with someone who is simply incapable of making basic life decisions. So we need to power down decision-making to the lowest level of government, which is the individual and the family, and stop trying to create circumstances wherein we'll create economy or equality through federal government because the federal government is absolutely, literally incapable of understanding our wants and needs uh, as well as we are. Tom Garrett served as state senator of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Tom Garrett was elected to the U.S. Congress and served on the House Committees of Foreign Affairs, Homeland Security and Education, and the Workforce. He is a U.S. Army veteran and served in locations including the Balkan region. And he's currently engaged in foreign policy, civil society, and serves as a well-respected advisor on the Religious Freedom Front, spending time in the difficult parts of the world, including Syria. And as an attorney, he practices law in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And truly, Tom, we appreciate your great Great service to our nation. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Tom. Thank you all for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. is an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit. I'm Jolan Asami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit.